0: Your family, or your wife, um, and your marriage. Um, Let me, since we take a take a we took a week off, let me just kind of uh, review where we've come from, what we've covered, and this is not the best uh, tripod in the world, but it's the you know it's all we can afford at a poor, struggling church. Um, We what we've tried to do is what we're trying to do is uh, discuss uh, how to flesh out a life of grace. That is, what does it mean to live out not only were we saved by grace, but we lived by, we lived by grace. And so what does it mean to flesh that out? And so there have been historically two um, uh, wrong responses to grace and how, what it means to live like that as a believer. One of those, of course, is legalism. The other is antinomianism. And uh, my, uh, my plan has been to, and continues to be, that we will evaluate legalism and we will conclude that tonight. And then next week we'll come back and spend a couple of weeks, maybe three, two or three weeks, on antinomianism. And then we'll close with two or three weeks on um, what is... Because we've uh, eliminated both of those two as an option, we can then uh, fix our attention on what would be something that would square, we hope, uh, more faithfully and honestly with the Scriptures. Now, um, I have to tell you, uh, by way of confession, that if I had to choose one that I, that I hate the most, I guess that's not a word I'm supposed to use, but it would be this, this thing of legalism. Uh, in my opinion, in the opinion of other people that I respect, such as Chuck Swindoll, we're convinced that legalism, it's legalism that has sucked the lifeblood out of the church, and it is the thing that's given us such a bad reputation uh, in, the, in the mind of the average American. Um, and it, it, it's, it interests me that's, um, I, I can't say this for sure, but I want to suggest that uh, Jesus hated it too. Now, that's a little bit of speculation on my part, but here's one of the, um, the evidences that I have. In the New Testament, on seven different occasions, Jesus confronted the Pharisees about Sabbath observance. He would heal this man on the Sabbath, and he would do this on the Sabbath, and he was constantly doing things on the Sabbath that could have waited for the next day. But he always, it's almost like he was looking for a chance to pick a fight. Now, again, guys, uh, that doesn't maybe sound. I'll, I remember years ago, um, Elmer Gantry, there was a movie called Elmer Gantry. And one of the lines in Elmer Gantry was If Jesus had a been a baseball player, he'd have slid into second with his cleats high. Ah. Well, that's not particularly um, flattering because when you come in with your cleats high, you're trying to hurt somebody. But the, but the idea is that there was a, a certain a manliness and um, um, a, a, a masculinity about Jesus that was worthy of respect. And, and I see that when Jesus is constantly forcing the issue. <clears throat> you may remember my uh, example about wanting to bring a glass of red liquid to the podium one time and just see the people of God squirm. You know, just one of these wine glasses and kind of pour something red in there and just, and just kind of shake it around and, you know, sniff it and, you know, and all that business. And, and um, um, wanting to watch the people of God. oh, my goodness, what has he done now? Well, I think there's a sense in which Jesus did that. He was always forcing the issue and on seven different occasions in the New Testament. He was ramming this issue at, at, at Pharisees, or Pharisees, ramming it down their throats, that they misunderstood and misapplied and, mis- and abused the Sabbath because they uh, were legalists. Well, thus far, we have mentioned three things, three characteristics of legalism. The first, <coughs> pardon me, um, that it encourages self-glory. The primary characteristic of legalism, ladies and gentlemen, is that it, it's desire for self-glory. It's, a, it's desire for reputation. We looked at that. Secondly, uh, it redefines godliness. And we looked at Mark chapter 7, where Jesus says about the Pharisees that they set aside the law of God in view of the traditions of the elders. That is, they elevated their traditions and by so doing had devalued, eliminated the very laws of God. We looked at that on a, on a second week or third, whatever, and then uh, the last time we were together, we mentioned, or I, I discussed with you, that legalism undervalues, undercuts the role of the Holy Spirit. Who needs him? Who needs the Holy Spirit to tell you what to do when you have the legalistic code? And we talked about code living uh, a little bit the last time we were together. Well, I want to add two things to that um, description of legalism tonight, and we'll wrap that up tonight. Uh, first of all, or the, the, the fourth characteristic is that legalism... Is a, is a modern version, not so modern, but uh, at least um, we'll call it modern, a modern version of the Galatian error that is recorded in the book of Galatians. And you all know what that is, don't you? <laughs> Do you know why the book of Galatians was written? In fact, most people, ladies and gentlemen, would suggest that the first draft of the book of Romans was the book of Galatians. That when Paul is sitting in a prison and he's thinking about what he wants to write, the first draft is that he writes a letter to the book of Galatians, and then he expands that theme in his longer piece, The Letter to the Romans. But the book of Galatians, ladies and gentlemen, if you'll read it, it's designed to correct one problem. Now, there's some great texts in um, Galatians, um, Galatians 2.20, The Fruit of the Spirit, all those things that people study and know about the book of Galatians, but it was designed to correct an error that had arisen in the Christian church. Here's the error. it was um, uh, promoted by a group of people that came to be known as Judaizers, J-U-D-A-I-Z-E-R-S. And the Judaizers were converted, or at least supposedly converted Jews, who uh, were finding it very difficult to um, adjust to grace. They All of their lives had been inundated by law. And so when they came into the kingdom of God they had a mindset that was very legal and they found it very difficult to adjust to, the, um, to this new freedom found in grace. And so what they did is that they promoted a position that said this, oh yes, you've got to believe in Jesus. No question about that. But if you're ever going to be saved, you must also be circumcised. You remember that? And Paul starts off that letter by saying, if anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one that I brought to you, let him go to hell. That's what he says. And, and then he repeats that. In verses, verse 8 and verse 9 of, of the first chapter. Let him fall under a divine curse when they tamper with the gospel. Because they've added something to the gospel. You know, the gospel as we know it is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And the junior said, yeah, that's good, but it just didn't take you far enough. You need to be circumcised. And as a result of that, ladies and gentlemen, Paul comes sweeping into the area in the book of Galatians and meets up with his old buddy Peter. And guess who had fallen into error? Peter! And um, the text says that I withstood him to his face in the view of all. That is, one day in some public forum, Paul... Stands up and rebukes Peter because Peter had fallen into the error of the Judaizers. Can't you imagine that? Wouldn't that be a nice case of church squabbling? Well, here they were, the two foremost personalities in the church, the one that is considered to be the founder of the church, Peter, and Paul saying, You, Mr. Peter, are wrong and stop it because he was adding this circumcision to the gospel. And as a result of that confrontation, ladies and gentlemen, a council, a meeting, a big gathering of the church is called. Where is that recorded? That council of the church is recorded in Acts chapter 15, ladies and gentlemen. It's called the Jerusalem Council. When all of the churches sent representatives to Jerusalem... And what was conducted there and recorded for you in Acts 15 is what ca- has come to be known as the Jerusalem Council. And the question was, what is this new gospel going to be? And as a result of this meeting of the leaders of the church, they told Paul, Paul, you get back to work and you tell them, don't add this circumcision thing. That's not right. So Paul, with a letter in hand from the bigwigs in Jerusalem, heads back to the mission field and says, they're all wrong because they've been telling you to add something to the pure gospel and I say to you, that's not the gospel. Now, all of that to say this, ladies and gentlemen, I'm suggesting to you that legalism does the same thing except in a little bit less consequential way because they add things like women, you should not wear pants, or, gang, you should not go to certain movies, and you shouldn't um, do this nor do that, and um, the last thing that you want the church to be doing and found doing is dancing. So we need to avoid all those things, and there are certain things that we do do. So the Christians. They believe in Jesus, all right, but they also don't do this and they don't do that and they don't do the other and they do this, do this, and do this. Same thing, ladies and gentlemen. It is adding something to the, to the purity of the gospel that ought not be there. It is to tamper with the purity and simplicity of the gospel that simply states, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt, thou shalt be saved. That's enough. Don't 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 add anything else to that. <coughs> now, um I want you to see a couple of statements that Paul makes. So I hope you've got your Bibles with you. And I'd like to ask you to turn to the book of Galatians, and I want to read you just two passages out of there. And the first one is in Galatians chapter three, and this has gotta be one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Uh, now again, I'm saying that legalism says Well, let me read the the verse first. And then I'll tell you, this is what I think legalism does. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Paul looks at the Galatian church and he says this. Oh, I love the uh, the apostle Paul. This, This guy Paul, he was a dude. He was a man's man. And this pastor, this consummate pastor, looks at the Galatian church and says, Are you so foolish? No preacher would say that these days. Run some of his people off. He wouldn't want to stand in the pulpit and say, Hey, you're a bunch of fools! No, he wouldn't do that. But that's what he does. He looks at the Galatian church. He says, Are you so foolish? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or or by the hearing of it? Are you so, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, legalism says, yeah, that's what we're doing. Yeah, we we came into the kingdom by grace, yes, but now, having stepped inside the kingdom, we're continuing on, we're adding to, we're being made perfect by the flesh. And uh, the flesh is supposed to listen up to all the rules that we put in place so that we can tame it. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, what the Judaizers did to the Galatian church and to the Christian church in in a very significant way, legalism does in a less significant way, but no less harmful. Because it says, okay, now that you've stepped into the kingdom, we know that that's by grace, just go out there and live by performing the way we tell you to perform. And everybody's got their ways of telling you how to perform. One other text I want you to see is in Galatians 5. Let me read the first three verses of Galatians 5. Oh, my friends, listen to the Apostle Paul when he says in Galatians 5, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. He's pleading with his audience, don't confuse things by tacking on some kind of fleshly, uh, code <coughs> to which you have been called to obey now ladies and gentlemen we're gonna I, I'm not saying that there's not anything to obey there is something to obey we'll get to that in a few weeks but I don't have to obey you and you are not the guide of my conscience and the things that you think are important aren't necessarily have to be important to me stand firm and firm and the freedom, the liberty by which Christ has made you free. I am free from everything, including the bondage of sin and the bondage to people. But Pharisees, so concerned about the opinions of people, they're in bondage. In bondage because they've been encrusted the gospel with all this stuff that doesn't matter. I do say to you, ladies and gentlemen, I know full well, and we'll discuss this, we'll talk about this later, but grace is dangerous. I'm telling you, folks, principles of living by, by grace are too revolutionary for many Christians, um, they just can't stand their freedom. They, uh, it's scary. They want somebody to tell them what to do. They want some daddy to tell them what is the right choice and what is the wrong choice because it's easier, it's easier being under a law. Give me a law and then I know whether I'm right or wrong. It's not easy to flesh out my life in obedience to Christ following this, the leadership of God's Spirit. Did you begin by the spirit and now you're gonna complete it by the flesh? Well, legalists do, in, in my analysis. You know, folks, um, as I said, freedom is scary to many people. Because if, you know, and I told you, I had that man come up to me about three weeks ago and he said, um, I agree with what you're saying, Jimmy, but I hope you won't say this to my children. Why? If it's the truth, why shouldn't I say it to their children? Why shouldn't I say it to your children if it's true? You know, because, you know, I don't think they know how to handle it. You know, they may abuse it. Well, yeah, they might. But that doesn't mean that we ought to alter the truth because somebody's going to abuse it. We ought not change what's 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 scriptural just because we're afraid that people are going to misunderstand it. <clears throat> Folks, um, I hope you don't. Con- I hope you don't conclude that I have some kind of, um, I don't know, fetish about alcohol consumption because I don't. But it just, it just is a good illustration. It's just a one in the South that becomes a real good illustration. So forgive me. Can you imagine? Can you imagine David, the psalmist, ever worrying? about what people thought if he sat down at a meal to eat a, to drink a glass of wine. Can you possibly imagine? Folks, um, can you imagine any Jewish converted Christian being concerned about consuming a glass of wine? Can you? Well, if it's wrong for us, it ought to be wrong for them too. Now, now guys, I'm not, I'm not trying to encourage anything here. I'm simply saying... The standards are not set by my group. The group doesn't get to set them. Um, if you, um, if you're a legalist, I'm to, I, I I'm, I'm suggesting that you're you're skating very close to committing the same mistake that the Judaizers did in the Book of Galatians. That is, adding things that ought not be added. Here's my fifth principle. Um, you know one of the earmarks of a, of a legalist is his his quickness to judge his uh, his willingness to judge and I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, um, one cannot become judgmental without some way without in some way elevating himself time and time again let me let me show you a passage that you already know in luke eighteen it 's the story of the publican and the Pharisee, and the publican of course is the bad guy the pharisee is the one who stands in front of the temple and um, jesus tells the parable in luke 18 beginning in verse 9 and he says two men went up to the temple to pray one a pharisee which i'm equating with legalism and the other a tax collector the pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself god i thank you that i'm not like other men you see ladies and gentlemen if you, if you feel like it is your prerogative to judge, um, the way you have to do that is elevate yourself over everybody else, or at least certain everybody else's. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, self-elevation is a satanic syndrome. It's Satan syndrome, self-elevation. They're, they're the shortest route to ascendancy, ladies and gentlemen, is the depreciation of someone else or some other group. The quickest way to move up is to kick them down. And if you consider yourself capable of and um, responsible for judging everybody around you, then uh, you can't do that without ultimately elevating... Um, you know the story uh the story in Matthew chapter seven about the beam and the moat in Matthew seven verses three through five and and Jesus says, um, you know don't worry about the you know the the speck in their eye because you've got the beam in your own and, and and maybe somebody has told you this before, but it seems that Jesus is saying there at least many of the one of the many things that he's saying there is the one who's doing all that, you know, quibbling about the speck in the brother's eye is doing something far, far, far worse than the guy with the speck in his eye because what he's got in his eye is a beam. And compared to what he did, this, this quickness, this willingness, this propensity to judge him is far worse than what the guy did. Um, guys, um, it, it it all starts by thinking that we're an expert on something. It starts with thinking we've arrived at some level of competency in some area so that we now are qualified to um, measure how unqualified you are. I want to tell you a story, and, um, and I've got to be somewhat careful because I, I don't want you to figure out what I'm saying. Except the point. Um, I went to a luncheon recently. In the last six months, I went to a luncheon at the Crescent Club, and I was invited to this luncheon. It's a bunch of preachers, a bunch of Presbyterian preachers, um, who um, were meeting to discuss an issue and be talked to by the president of Covenant Seminary. Covenant Seminary is a seminary in St. Louis. It's a very good seminary. Bren Harriman, that many of you know, that's where he's attending. It's a great seminary, and the president is a slick guy. He's a good guy. And he is talking about this new program that they, I gotta give you a lot of details because I got it'll help you understand another you know, point. But the um, the president is telling us about a new program that they're offering to people like you. It's called an MA, a Masters of Arts from from Covenant Seminary. And what they're trying to do is to make theological education more readily available to the layman. And so they're, they're, um, you know, there's all this emphasis in seminaries now about um, extension and video courses and all this business. Well, an MA is a degree in, um, that is um, uh, my son-in-law, Clay Smyth, that's what he's trying to get is an MA at, at Covenant Seminary. And so, and I know you don't understand a whole lot about Presbyterians, but we're pretty weird folk. But um, the question at this luncheon was whether or not we in our presbytery would be willing to ordain someone with an M.A. degree. Now, I've got an M.D. of degree, and I've, I've got a doctorate. But this is that I mean, if you're going to have to scale things, you're going to have to... You know, you have to put an MA somewhere under an MDiv because it doesn't require the the languages, Hebrew and Greek, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a very wonderful degree. Now, let me give you an example. We've got a guy on this staff that I think is as sharp as anybody. I mean, I think the whole city wants him um, Randy Ray. I think he's a dude. And he runs our high school ministry and the kids love him. I and mean, he's just a wild man looking for some place to spew on. I mean, he's just, a, I had, remember somebody telling me, I'd, I'd rather have a wild stallion and put a bridle in its mouth than and try to pump up a bunch of dead slugs. Well, Randy's one of those stallions. I mean, he, you know, he's, you got to put a bridle in his mouth from time to time, but he's a, he's a, he's a stallion. Well, um, um, he wants to get his degree. And his wife, you know, just had a baby, and um, he would like to get some seminary education, and so he has begun the pursuit of an MA. And then, when he gets finished with that, he wants to get some languages from Mid America, and he would like for me to uh, teach him some what they call pastoral ministry courses, thing. And then he wants to pursue ordination at our presbytery. So, this discussion at this luncheon was about whether our presbytery would be willing to ordain M.A.'s. So I've got a vested interest in this discussion. My, my ears are perked up, you know? And so, um, I mean, here's a young man that, that'll uh, by the time he's uh, re- ready to apply for ordination, he will have been in the ministry 8 to 10 years. He's got all kinds of education experience underneath him, and I simply cannot fathom. I couldn't fathom anybody saying, Hmm. You're not, we're not going to ordain you. I couldn't, I can't imagine. Well, anyway, we're sitting at the lunch table, and, you know, at the Crescent Club, you're supposed to be on your best behavior up there. And um, so the subject comes up. And, uh, you know, nobody's saying wrong. And so I raised my hand, and I said, well, um, I addressed the man at the other end of the table who is a pastor, who is a good guy, and I said, and, uh, Pete, that's not his name, um, Pete, do you think that our presbytery would ordain an M.A.? And he said, no, I don't think so. And, um, and by the way, by the time we, the discussion finished, he came back and said, Pete said, well, you know what? I, I, I think we ought to consider it uh, you know, person to person, uh, case to case. Well, all this discussion ensued. And about that time, a guy sitting right next to me says this. I almost went through my my chair. He says, well, I wouldn't ordain him because for me, it's a question of faith. Now, here's what he meant. You know, I had a wonderful job with Procter & Gamble. I was 24 years old. Uh, No, uh, yeah, 24 years old. I had to quit that job with Procter & Gamble and I had to move with my family of Susie and I had to move to Jackson, Mississippi and, and take up a residence. And and for this man, that communicates faith. MAs, you see, don't leave their homes and go to the seminary campus. They can do it from their offices or their homes, et cetera, et cetera. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not here to tell you whether my leaving Procter and & Gamble and going to Reform Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi was a statement of faith or not. Here's my problem. I want to know how this man is going to measure my faith. I want to know when did you get to the place where you became proficient enough to measure the faith of that man. I want to know with all the life... Let's take Randy Ray. Let's pick on him. Of all the life experiences that he's got with a wife and a child and a family here and da 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 but you're saying that because he did not leave his home and move to the campus of a seminary that he did not exercise faith. Tell me, how'd you come to that conclusion? That's when can you read a heart? How did you quantify it? When did you get to the place where you thought that a seminary education and a few years in the ministry qualified you to measure the faith of that man? I'm telling you, almost lost my dentures, <laughs> of which there are many. Guys, where did you come off thinking you could measure my faith either? When did you come to the place where you were proficient enough to gaze into my soul and figure out how spiritual I was? It is an ugly business, ladies and gentlemen. It is an ugly business. For God's sake, stay out of it. Please, I beg you, it is none of our business. And I'm telling you, judgmentalism, of which we are all guilty, but some more guilty than others, judgmentalism is a subtle form of self-exaltation. Now if that shoe fits, for heaven's sake, put it on. get out of that business, ladies and gentlemen. It is not for us to measure the condition of a man's heart. It is the essence of ugliness in my opinion. I want to read you one thing and we're finished. Um, this book is out of print, and i'm 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 sorry it is it's um it's a wonderful old treatise, love covers. And um, th- the book was good, but he, there's a couple of appendices in the back <laughs> um, that I'm telling you are worth the price of this book and 50 others. Here's one of the appendix, or appendices, Judgmentalism. That's one of them. The other one, really the one that was the better one, though, um, was the third one? No, it's the fourth one. On on judging others, which is really you know the the same thing. Could I read you just a um, just a couple of couple of things? Um, severity. This is talking about judgmentalism, of course, on judging others. Severity, so that would be severity in one's judgings, severity is one of the natural accompaniments of a young and immature state of grace. There's not one legalist in 5,000 that understands that. They think that because their performance has been pretty good that they're pretty mature spiritually. This gentleman is suggesting that a severe or a tendency to judge, a quickness to judge, is an evidence not of spiritual maturity, but just the opposite. I don't know whether you agree with him, but, um, um, you know, listen to this. Let's say that you're in the business of judging another person, and they're doing a bad thing. Listen to what he says. When we see evil in others... We never can see the amount of inward resistance which the person has given to the evil or the amount of humiliation and sorrow which they may may have for their own failures and defects. The violence of temptation is always invisible and its peculiar oppressiveness owing to heredity or education or previous modes of life can never be estimated by a fellow creature. Did you get that? You know, here you are taking somebody's head off. You don't know what the severity of the temptation and the degree uh, that he's trying to resist it and he hates what he's going through. I'll ask you my my, uh, famous question again. Where does the Democrat who is pro-choice and struggling with homosexual tendencies go to church? I love that question, because to me, it just says it all. You know, so you've got somebody that's struggling with homosexual tendencies, and you're... You struggle with anything? Well, you would think, to talk to a lot of legalists, that they're not struggling with anything. Um. If we actually saw what God is doing in the very people we often criticize and condemn, we could be utterly astonished at the immensity, the vigor, and the versatility of the magnificent spiritual work which God is doing all around us in the world. That is, you know, we're ready to quick to judge those, and God may be doing this wonderful thing that we don't have the slightest knowledge of what is going on could read this. Um, Nothing is more amazing than the patient, gentle charity that God displays to His his own creatures. Don't you want to do that? Isn't that beautiful to you? Patient, gentle charity. Isn't that beautiful, guys? That's what should exist among us. Gentle charity. One other sentence. Uh, no, it's a paragraph, and I'm finished. Now, the more we are with God, and the closer our union is with Him, and the more deeply we drink of the interior sweetness of His life, the more we shall catch something of His gentleness and compassion of spirit, which will destroy our proclivity for harsh judgments and take away our keenness by which we discover evil in others. Even where judgments are legitimate and unavoidable, we may lay it down as a rule that the severity of our judgments is an infallible index to the lowness of our own spiritual state. Green sanctity is ever swift and sharp and thinks God is too lenient and often acts as if his judgment throne wanted an occupant. Do you get that? The legalist thinking that the throne of God is vacant and he needs to get on it. Green Sanctity, ladies and gentlemen. I'm saying to you the closer we get to who God is, the more tender are our hearts towards Him, the less we will find ourselves engaging in opinions, critiques, and criticisms of each other. Oh, guys, I mentioned a book to you. This is what I I am, and I want you to be it with me. I'm a recovering Pharisee. Let's recover from our Phariseeism. Next week we'll look at the other extreme. Let's go. Our Father, we do thank you for your word that uh, entices us with its beauty and, and its frankness and its pointedness. It is a book that, um, that doesn't cater to our whims. It is one that takes no prisoners. It is one that speaks the truth, and it speaks the truth always in love. That's who we want to be, O God. We we don't want to make our our brother's problems worse. We want to help lighten his load by coming alongside the way God the Holy Spirit does to minister comfort and encouragement. Might that be said of us, O God, that there is such a hatred of legalism among us because we are people who walk closely to the God who is so patiently gentle to his people. I want to be like you, Father, and I am not. By your Spirit, advance us in that direction. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, and good night.